All right, let's go. First Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens uh, behind me. If you're watching this at home, you will have the uh, text up on your screen. I think uh, when we get to that part of our time together. If you don't own a Bible, uh, we would love for you to um, take a physical one home. We have some scattered around the room in the little racks beneath the seats. Uh, we believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things. But chief among those important things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. Uh, we want you to know God. We want everything in, about, and around your life to be shaped by that knowing of Him. And so, if you don't have a, a copy of God's Word, the Scriptures that you can call yours, um, I know how to fix that. Come talk to me after class. Um, So we are a couple of weeks now into an effort uh, to kind of take a closer look at what we call the fruit of the Spirit. Paul lists out a collection of things in Galatians 5 that are all present in the life and character of God's people. Uh, The Bible uh, calls them the fruit of the Spirit. Paul calls them the fruit of the Spirit. We like to call them the fruit of the Spirit. And so here's obviously the moment of truth for all the good church kids in the room who can rattle them off. Love. It's getting quieter. (laughs) Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Don't worry, you've got several more weeks to practice. All right, so we kicked things off two weeks ago by kind of looking at uh, the fruit of the Spirit as kind of one collective whole, one singular group of of good things. Uh, Paul uses the singular word in the Greek for fruit, and so uh, in his head, this is something that's kind of growing in the life of God's people all at the same time. They're not picking and choosing a la carte style. I want to I want to add a little bit of gentleness to my personality, and I think I need to grow in a little bit of in a, in a little bit of goodness. No, all of these things are present and and growing in the life of God's people. All right. And so, uh, and so we are shaping our effort, kind of, kind of leaning our effort into all of these things at once. But now that we have that kind of collective grouping of things buried deep in the back of our minds, uh, we have uh, shifted our effort to begin to kind of pick this apart and look at each one of these fruit in detail, uh, highlight and and kind of uh, spell these out and, and define them a little bit better. Um, but And so um, we gave ourselves, if you don't remember, four rules to kind of guide our pathway, if you want to call it that. Uh, four rules to protect us from kind of veering into a, a not-so good place. And, and the first rule uh, was that the fruit of the Spirit are really nothing more than the, the fleshing out of God's own good character in His people. Meaning, all the things that God calls us to, they're, they're not arbitrary. He's not placing random commands upon His people and expecting random things out of us. No, these are things that He already is in perfection and things that He's already done on our behalf. And so uh, the fruit of the Spirit are really Him inviting us into where He already is, we said. That's rule number one. Last week we looked at, looked at and highlighted the fruit of love. And so to apply rule number one, we're not called to love simply because you know love sounds good. It makes the world a better place and makes this a happier room to, to sit in. No, we love because God first loved us, right? Yeah, we love because God first loved us. He is the good initiator of perfect love, and he invites us to join him in how he loves. The second rule uh, that we gave to ourselves is that is that these fruit are not something that we can produce in ourselves or we can't earn or achieve our way into growing these fruit. These fruit belong to the Spirit. They're His fruit, not your fruit. And so He is the one who must bring the growth. And thanks be to God, man, that's exactly what He intends to do in me. 
Right? God has not merely declared us holy. He is making us holy. And that's really good news because I don't have that in the tank, right? I don't know, maybe you're better than me on that. I'm guessing not, though. But God is also making us holy. And so day after day after day, as we walk in step with the Spirit, to use Paul's own words in Galatians 5, he is producing fruit in us, producing spiritual maturity in us. You cannot ever white-knuckle your way into growing the spiritual fruit of love. You just can't do it. But neither have you been asked to. That's not your job. The Spirit is pleased to produce that in you. It's His job. And, and I get the impression from the Bible that He actually really... Hey, look, there's the lights. All right. So I get the impression from the Bible that He actually really likes doing that. Right? I get the impression from the Scriptures that the Spirit actually enjoys producing those things in us. But while the Spirit is the only one who is capable of bringing the growth, it would be wrong for us to swing that pendulum all the way to the, to the edge. It, it would be wrong for us to, to, to see this as some kind of lazy moment for us. We have not been called to sit on the sidelines and just watch the Spirit work. No, uh, rule number three that we gave ourselves is that we are called to cultivate this growth of fruit. We practice the things that the Spirit has called us to as we day by day by day grow in Christ-likeness. Uh, effort and earning are not the same thing. They're not the same thing. You cannot earn, but that doesn't mean you haven't been called to some form of effort. We cannot earn these fruit, but we do cultivate the growth of these fruit by walking consistently with what the Spirit is teaching us to value and love as He values and loves, right? So last week, last week we saw that, that our call is to practice love for others as we have already been loved. And, and let's be honest, right? that's sometimes hard to do. Can we go ahead and say the quiet part out loud? Some people are really not all that lovely. Some people are really difficult to, to love. And so oftentimes the fruit of love requires some kind of sacrifice out of us. It just does. Like We're called to put to death the things that we want or maybe even put to death the things that we think we deserve for the good of the beloved. We cultivate these fruit by practicing these fruit. And the fruit being present in us, that's a really important marker for spiritual maturity. But listen, it's not just spiritual maturity that God is aiming us at. And that's a good thing. It's a valuable thing. It's a thing worthy of celebration, but it doesn't end on us. And so the fourth rule that we gave ourselves when looking and properly understanding the fruit of the Spirit is that when we see these fruit correctly, when we grow in these fruit like we've been called to, we will also see a benefit to others flow out of that growth. It will become a blessing to others. Spiritual maturity never, ever exists in a vacuum. It will always flower out and become a blessing to others, both inside the church and outside the church. So we got four rules. You ready to jump into the second fruit? Which one was it? Joy. Hey, you're on topic. Good job. All right. So what is joy? Well, just like Last week with the fruit of love, joy also, I think, has a pretty sizable divide uh, between how the Bible defines it and how the world around us, the culture we find ourselves living in, would try to, to define the word joy. If you look up the definition of joy in a dictionary right now, you're going to be left with the impression that it's really nothing more than just an incredibly strong version of happiness. 
right? Especially around Christmas time, right? How many of you saw the old Navy commercials? They leaned into joy hard. And so joy for a lot of people is just a really strong version of happiness. Happiness on steroids with a little bit of, you know, uh, holiday spirit thrown in on top to round it out. That's joy in a lot of people's head. And to a lot of people, joy might actually be something that can be a problem if you have too much of it. Um, the joy needs to be tempered by other emotions to mellow it out if someone is going to finally be emotionally mature. And that sounds like a ridiculous thing, but that's also exactly the story that gets told in the Pixar movie Inside Out. Are you all familiar with that story? Um, Inside Out. I'd give you a spoiler warning, but it's a seven-year-old kid's movie. Chances are, if you haven't seen it yet, you don't care about ever seeing it. Um, but I, do we have a movie po- Yeah, there's a movie poster for it. Um, so if you haven't seen it, the premise of the movie is actually really incredibly clever. And I think incredibly unique. Uh, it tells the story of a girl growing up. Her name's Riley. And uh, the, so she's the main character, sort of. But really the story is about the emotions inside of her. And in order to tell that story, they give personified versions of the emotions going on inside her. They complete, um, completely anthropomorphize emotions, which is, that's, if you want a big word for that. And so they turn emotions into characters. And so you got the characters, uh, the blue one, sadness, the one with the fire shooting out his head. That's anger. You got disgust, the green one. You've got fear over there acting all fearful on the left. And then you've got joy. Just she can't keep her hands down uh, in the middle, right? And so uh, now you can certainly overanalyze a children's movie. I don't want to go down that route. And so that's not what we're aiming at. But we do have evidence, like if you watch interviews uh, from the the movie makers, the story writers uh, around this movie, uh, they will tell you that they were intentionally trying to uh, weave kind of certain clinical influences and agendas into their writing. Like they, they say that out loud. This is what we were trying to do. They were aiming at telling a psychologically deep story that was full of nuance about what it truly means to grow up. It's what they were aiming for. And so the entire plot of the movie revolves around this personified character of joy, this personified emotion, struggling to come to terms with the fact that her little girl's growing up and that emotions are becoming more complicated things. It can't just be all happiness or sadness or disgust at any given moment. There's a mixture of emotions all coloring one instance in time. And so, if a girl, Riley, is going to ever be emotionally mature, the plot of the story is that Joy has to get out of the way and allow her little girl to grow up. Quit trying to pretend that everything's all great all the time. Now, there are a hundred reasons why I think the movie is incredibly clever and probably good to watch with your kids. My kids have watched it. We've had a lot of really good discussions flow out of that. You can even point to some really, really good gospel kind of influences like sacrificial love. Rest in peace, bing bong. Right? There's sacrificial love in there. You can point to that and say, listen, that stirs you on purpose. God has wired you to respond to that. So there's good things in the movie, but what drives me crazy about the movie is that the entire story is built upon what I think, what I would argue is a pretty pathetic definition of what joy is. Just like last week with the word love, joy is another word that I think has been hollowed out by our culture. The Bible is going to use the word joy in an entirely different way than what movies do. Entirely different way. Let, let me show you what I mean. First Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one. 
We're going to start in verse 1. Peter writes this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Okay, so the Apostle Peter, he writes a letter. And who does he write the letter to? The elect exiles of the dispersion. And then he lists off a bunch of places where they're supposedly living. And all those names are, are names of Roman provinces across northern Turkey. And so it would be the region, the, those followers of Jesus in the region of Pontus, in the region of Galatia, in the regions of Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. But what in the world is the dispersion? What is that? Well, there's actually a pretty good bit of debate about that. Uh, remember how I told you last week that people... There are some people out there that like to try to poke holes in the authorship of John's letters. Well, those same people try to poke holes in the authorship of Peter's letters. Um, Peter was martyred in the city of Rome, we think somewhere between 64 and 67 AD. Uh, but before that point, there hadn't really, honestly, been any kind of organized persecution of the church. Now, th th at least not in the sense of some kind of formal edict being handed down from a Caesar. Now, there certainly was persecution. It was, it was rough, and uh, it was just more on the grassroots level. It was coming from the Jewish authorities, not the Roman authorities. It was coming from their pagan neighbors around this sect that they didn't understand. So this quickly growing sect of outsiders that were worshiping a different god than their neighbors, that be they became an easy target for those who wanted to, to like blame them on stuff. They were scapegoats for a lot of things. They were good to punish for a lot of things. You could, get, you could blame it on the Christians, all right? And so uh, persecution was certainly real. It, it mattered, but it was also more localized and tended to come in waves. But in 64 AD, something happened that changed that narrative. It's a story that you may, may actually be familiar with. Um, there was a massive fire in the city of Rome, Nero, the emperor at the time. Well, he decided that it would be politically expedient to point the finger at this brand new sect of Christians who worshiped a different God than us, and everybody was liking to pick on right now. He pointed to the Christians and said, oh, it's their fault. And from that moment on, persecution shifted from the grassroots to the official. And it began to ramp up rapidly. Um, Peter uh, was martyred in the city of Rome shortly after the fire. Paul, we think, was martyred in the city of Rome around the same time period. But what started under Nero, it ramped up even more so with a couple of emperors following after him, Domitian and Trajan. They, they reigned in the 80s and 90s AD, so 20 to 30-ish years after we think Peter probably died. And so some people point to this word dispersion here in verse 1, and they, they argue, well, well, Peter wasn't around for the worst part of the persecution. He, he was dead before it really got bad. But it says dispersion right there. Everybody must be scattered. I see the word. It says dispersion. So Peter wasn't around for that part, so Peter couldn't have written this letter. And that's the argument. That's the entire argument. The Greek word there is the word diaspora. We commandeered that word, and we use it in, in English still today. It, it appears in a couple other places in the New Testament. Uh, John 7.35, James 1.1. The ESV renders all three of those instances as the dispersion with a capital D. Uh, but the New American Standard, another really great English translation, it renders the phrase as strangers scattered throughout. Uh, 
And so that tells us that the word doesn't have to be used in the most negative sense. It doesn't have to be used that way. The dispersion doesn't have to be some grand act of forcibly scattering all of God's people through some formal edict handed down by the king, handed down empire-wide. It could, it could just mean those who have spread out across the Roman Empire, or in this case, northern Turkey. Okay, okay. But Peter could have used other words to, to, to talk about a scattering. He doesn't have to use diaspora. It's a pretty rare word in the New Testament. He, why didn't he just use a more common word to talk about how people kind of spread out and live in all these different places? Well, my theory is that he's intentionally trying to use the language of exile in order to teach an incredibly important something else. While Peter certainly didn't live long enough to you know, see the greatest time of persecution in the early church, that doesn't for one second mean that persecution didn't exist. That doesn't for one second mean that persecution wasn't a very real and very painful reality for God's people. And so First Peter, I think, is a letter written specifically to encourage the church in the face of ramping up persecution. It was written to give them instruction for when that first persecution arose and and man i think in god's great love for his people it was written before the day of greatest persecution arrived so that they would be ready for it when it got there he's good to them like that he loves them and he wants good for them and so even before the persecution got to its strongest point he's already buried in them some good things and so peter calls his audience elect exiles yeah, yeah, yeah. You feel like strangers living in a, in a faraway land. Yes, you face mockery and even open abuse for what you believe all around you. But listen, you belong to God. You belong to God. He has purchased you for himself. He has placed you exactly where he has placed you on purpose. And listen, he has a plan for you. If we want to steal some language from Jeremiah. He has a plan for you. But not, not just a plan for today. No, he has a plan for you tomorrow on the other side of that persecution. The other side of that hard place, that pain. And, and so Peter doesn't just call his audience elect exiles. He also says that their status is according to a couple of things. To the foreknowledge of God the Father. And to what? The sanctification, or we could say to the applying of holiness by the Holy Spirit and for the obedience to Jesus Christ through his sprinkled blood. In other words, God's got a plan for them over in Turkey. And yeah, it might involve some persecution, but make no mistake about it, God is the one in charge here. Regardless of who thinks they're in charge over in Turkey, God's the one in control. He has provided and he is providing every single thing necessary to carry them through to the other side. And he will use every circumstance, yes, even the really painful ones, to produce a thousand other very good things in them. By the way, this is for free. Here's yet another place in the Bible where we see all three persons of the Godhead at work at the same time. People like to sometimes argue, well, you never see the word Trinity in the Bible. True, you never see the word Trinity in the Bible, correct. 
Right. It's a word we came up with to describe what we do see in the Bible over and over and over and over and over again. An incredibly persistent theme. It's a word we coined to help teach something massive in a shorthand kind of way. And so, congratulations. But like I said, that's for free. Every pastor needs to point that out when we come to it. All right. So, Peter addresses his audience in the language of an exile. He's calling them to kind of remember back as a, a people uh, their attention back to the land of Babylon. Back to being the the remnant in a strange land, the remnant of God looking beyond their location and looking beyond their circumstances and instead trusting in the promises of God that he will one day soon fulfill. He calls their memory back to something that predates them. When God was also working powerfully, even though the people living in the present moment didn't understand it. And then in verse 3, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Peter explodes with an exclamation of praise here. He pretty much asks his audience, hey, do you have any idea how much God has already done for you? He's caused you to be born again, he says. Now, it's been my experience that that phrase, born again, that's a phrase that's lost a lot of meaning for people in churches across our culture. Um, just for some reason, people have kind of grown numb to what that really means. We're, we're not talking about some kind of you know, enlightenment, to, uh, an intellectual ascend, and we're not talking about people finally realizing and living out their personal truth. No, the Bible teaches that God takes spiritually dead men and he makes them alive. That's a, big, that's a big jump. He takes spiritually dead men and he makes them alive. And here in verse 3, Peter says that we have been born again into a living hope. Why is that hope alive? Because the one we place our hope in, he's alive. He's alive. Jesus Christ, who rose bodily from the dead. Listen, maybe you're new to the Bible, maybe you're new to the church thing, but this is another in a long list of biblical words and ideas that we have to be very careful to clearly define. We live in a culture that's, just, that's really sloppy with our vocabulary. Hope is often seen in our world as just kind of a, a, a blind, wishful trust, right? A naive, wishful thinking to a lot of people. That's how it often gets used, but that's not at all how the Bible uses the word hope. In the Bible, hope is a confident expectation over what we can't see yet because of the trustworthiness of all the things that we have already seen. It's a confident expectation of what we cannot see yet because of the trustworthiness of everything that we have seen. Namely, because God has again and again and again shown himself trustworthy, we have a reasonable and expectant hope in what he has promised to do later. It's not a problem for us to trust his promises because he has already proven himself to be a promise-keeping God. We trust his character, and therefore we can trust his promises. And so speaking to Christians that he has already addressed as spiritual exiles, Peter explodes with celebration here as he calls them not to get too distracted by the, by the circumstances that they're facing right now. It's not that those circumstances aren't painful. It's not that they're not hard. It's not that they don't cause real anguish and even despair. But, but 
you can take your eyes off of that for a second and you can instead put your eyes on the promises of the, that you have every reason that God will fulfill. You can expect that he will fulfill them. We're not talking about blind faith here. We're not talking about ignoring the, the problems and the pain going on around you. No, Peter calls them to lift the level of their eyes to the one who is trustworthy. And trust him. And why is he trustworthy? Look at everything he's already done. Look, look at the resurrection. What, what, what bigger thing is he going to fail to accomplish after that? What lesser thing that he could provide for you is he going to say, nah, it's just too expensive for me, I'm out. Look at, this, what he, look at what he's done in the resurrection. It's proof that he actually wants good for you, that he's actually in charge and he's got it. So Peter follows that up in verse 4. Not only have we been born again to a living hope, but that living hope has some characteristics about it. It says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter calls our hope an inheritance. That's a fun word, right? Inheritance. In the Old Testament, that phrase was, almost exclusively used to talk about the promised land, a physical country where God's people were supposed to be at rest and provided for, and you know, land flowing with milk and honey, right? It's a good land. But the New Testament writers took that idea and they added layers to it. In the New Testament, inheritance is often more uh, about the believer's share in a heavenly kingdom. We've been made co-heirs with Christ and all that belongs to him, he is pleased to share with us. In verse 4, we see that unlike the Old Testament promised land, a land that was still marked by a lot of brokenness and sin, a land that, that didn't quite pan out as well as they hoped it would pan out, the Christian's inheritance instead is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Why? Precisely because the heavenly kingdom is not marked by brokenness and sin. The Israelites, they, they brought their sin with them when they were rescued out of slavery in, in Egypt. And so their new home in the promised land was equally broken as the one that they had come out of. They may have been rescued out of physical slavery, but they were still very much slaves to their sin. But to paraphrase Paul in Romans 8, Jesus does what the law cannot do. Jesus does what the law cannot do. By his death on the cross in our place, Jesus both pays the debt for our sin and he removes the stain of our sin and then he clothes us in his own righteousness so that those who now belong to Jesus are presented to the Father as equally blameless as Jesus is. And we will one day receive an unfading inheritance. Listen, maybe you're here this morning or watching us online right now, whatever it is, and you're not a follower of Jesus yet. Today's a good day to do something about that. 
Today's a good day to do something about that. You can meet him right now. We got more to talk about this morning. I'm not done here, but you don't have to wait to the end of a sermon. You can respond to Jesus now. You can repent of your sin and you can turn to him in saving trust, a, a faith that, that, that takes his work on your behalf and, and leans on that rather than any work you might try to produce in yourself. And listen, if you want somebody to, to talk to you about that, I'm game. Hit me up after we're done here. I'd love to talk to you, to you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But what about those of us who have already placed our faith in him? What about those of us who have already clung to the promise of this unfading inheritance? And why haven't we talked about joy yet? Verse 6. You have to understand hope to understand joy. Verse 6. In this you rejoice Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So writing to Christians who face very real hardships, very real persecutions, even grief, we're told in in verse 6. Peter points to this coming inheritance and says, because that inheritance is untouchable. That inheritance is untouchable. And because that inheritance is untouchable, we, we can rejoice. But not some kind of empty, whatever definition you can come up with version of rejoice. No, in fact, it's a rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible, he says, filled with glory. We live in a culture that thinks of joy as an emotion that needs to be reined in by more realistic understandings of the world. We got movie makers crafting stories, clever stories or where joy is personified and, and then treated as some kind of caricature that just really needs to grow up. Get out of the way. Let some other emotions have some room. Understand that our world is also filled with sadness sometimes. And everything can be happy all the time. But the Christian definition of joy is never, ever dependent upon circumstance. It's not. For Christians, joy is the product of a living hope that is untouchable by circumstance. It is a confident and living hope in the face of our circumstances. Not because we're closing our eyes and stopping our ears to the hard thing, but because we trust in the promises of the promise maker. We trust in the promises of our promise-keeping God. And so at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much pain and persecution might ramp up. It's not that those things aren't real. It's not that those things don't cause significant problems. It's No, it's that those things don't have the power to yank the good things out of God's hands. They're not strong enough to steal joy because Jesus is the one hanging on to it. We have every reason to expect that we will obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Joy is not merely an emotion for us. It is the Christian's confident posture in spite of the pain because God is better and he's stronger and he's smarter and he's playing the longer game. 
So now that we've properly defined joy, how do we treat it as a fruit of the Spirit? How is this something that's supposed to be growing in us? Well, what's our first rule? That it's the character and action of God before it's ever an expectation on us, right? So it was, did Jesus ever endure some hard thing for the joy that was set before him? The cross, right? Hebrews 12. So not only do we look forward to an imperishable, undefiled inheritance, but we also look backwards to what Jesus was pleased to purchase on our behalf. We get it from both ends. Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame, because he understood that there was a much, much better reward, an infinitely better reward waiting for him on the other side of it. What about rule number two? Who who does the fruit belong to? Who must produce it? In other words, does joy come because, you know, I gritted my teeth and tried a little harder to be happy? Is that how we get more joy? It's got to be produced in us by the Spirit. As He convinces us more and more and more that the inheritance is better. At the end of the day, it's almost always an affections problem. He is slowly changing our heart to value what he values and loves what he loves. He'll get us there. He must get us there. But this isn't a lazy moment for us. Rule number three, we're called to cultivate, right? Like, I, I hope... I hope we can be honest here this morning. Like, it's, it's really stinking hard to keep your eyes on an incorruptible inheritance that you can't see yet when your world is falling down around you. Like, we all on the same page about that? Anybody want to get all cocky about it and say, nah, not me? It's really hard to focus on what's to come when your presence is a gigantic mess. And that's precisely why joy has to be practiced. That's why it has to be practiced. We, we fight to keep our eyes fixed. We fight to keep our eyes fixed. And we fight to keep trusting in the goodness of God and in the faithfulness of His promises until the day finally gets here where our eyes don't stray so easily. We discipline ourselves to trust his eternity-sized promises for us rather than the man-made efforts we all try to chase after earthly happiness. But what's the result of this cultivation of joy? Well, I'd argue a couple of things. One, we are opened up to the opportunity of inexpressible joy now. Um, Like, we long for the day. It's good and right to long for the day when that unfading inheritance will finally be handed to us. But listen, we're not simply waiting around twiddling our thumbs for that day. We have inexpressible joy now, today. I'm just going to go ahead and say that out loud. Um, it, It seems like a much better way to live than trying to desperately fake it till you make it. Are we also on the same page about that? Seems like a much, much better option to rest in and and enjoy inexpressible joy today rather than trying to pretend and put on the brave face the next time my world blows up. There's a second reason, second benefit to cultivating joy. 
I think that's where our fourth, fourth rule comes into play. It's not, not just a benefit to, to us. There's also a blessing to others that flows out of this fruit growing in us. There's a blessing to the church. When, whenever brothers and, see you, uh, brothers and sisters see your trust in God and the joy that's produced out of that trust in God, like despite your circumstances, that's going to like strengthen some things in them, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to cause them to, to grow in some, some ways. It will naturally strengthen the faith of others. And so we're all propped up by watching joy experienced and practiced in the real world. But not just the church. It's also an incredible blessing to those outside the church. Why? Because inexpressible, hope-filled joy will always Count on it. It will always create questions in people that don't know where that joy comes from. Always. And in that moment, to jump ahead to the chapter 3 in Peter's letter, we need to be ready to give a defense for that. Prepared to give an answer for that. The, the where does that joy come from question? It's an incredibly fertile ground for the gospel. Incredibly fertile ground for the gospel. Church family, we offer a much better story than what the world tries to offer. By landslide. And when they see that in you, it's going to strike a nerve. It's going to produce a question. And so when you practice joy in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the hardship, they're going to see it. And now you have an opportunity to tell, you, to tell them about where and why and how. When we ask the question, what do God's people look like? Part of the answer is that we are filled with joy. Not pretend happiness, but an unfading and incorruptible joy that can never, ever be stolen by circumstance. Pain and grief are real things. Only the immature would try to believe otherwise. But joy, joy is untouchable because the one who gives joy and is hanging on to joy, he's untouchable. So what do we do with all this? How, how can we respond to God's word this morning? I mean, we, what, what do we do? Um, well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, our, our response is the same as it is every single week, right? We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, I think he's showing us, I really think he's showing us that, that in his sovereignty and in his goodness to us, he is aiming us at much more eternal things than what we're probably usually having our eyes open to. I'm guilty of that. Are you ever guilty of that? So our response this morning probably needs to take the shape of recommitting our trust in him. It needs to be a conscious reminding ourselves of both his goodness and his greater understanding of the consequences I'm currently living in. He's using them. And it's when I forget that he's using them that I always end up in a not-so-good place. Maybe you're here this morning and you're needing to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe it's by formally joining our church family, or maybe it's by coming forward to, uh, to pursue Jesus' command to be baptized, or maybe it's by finally saying yes to his call on your heart to take the gospel to a faraway place. I'd love to be helpful to you. Uh, I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing. I'll be down front here if you want somebody to, to talk to uh, about that. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, or maybe you're watching online and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, today's a great day to fix that. Today's a great day to, to meet a Savior 
who offers hope and joy like you have no idea. And so I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. If you want somebody to talk to, I'm game. But whoever you are, however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for uh, a letter to some Christians in Turkey facing hardship, facing real persecution. And even without knowing it, about to face a lot more. God, I can point to some things in my own life and our own culture that aren't so great for Christians right now. <laughs> and I can, I can make some guesses about how things will pan out in the future. I'm, I'm guessing more persecution is to come. Really painful one, too. Would you instruct us by this? Would you cause us to place our hope not in the circumstance, but in the Lord over the circumstance? Would you lift the level of our eyes to the beauty of who you are and the trustworthiness of everything you promise? And if we get there, circumstances can come and go. Give us joy. Real joy, inexpressible joy in the face of an unfading inheritance. We love you. For those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Open eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to know you. Would you call men and women into your kingdom this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond.